0: Today's Bible reading is from Mark 3, verse 20 to 35. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by... sorry (laughs) haven't got my glasses on (laughs) by the prince of demons he's driving out demons so jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables how can satan drive out satan if a kingdom is divided against itself that kingdom cannot stand if a house is divided against itself that house cannot stand And if satan opposes himself and is divided he cannot stand his end has come in fact no one can enter a strong man's house without first trying him up tying him up then he can plunder the strong man's house truly i tell you people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter but whoever blasphemes against the holy spirit will never be forgiven they are guilty of an eternal sin he said this because they were saying, he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at these those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother.
1: All right. Well, good morning again. Um, Has anyone ever opened up their Bible and read a passage and think, what on earth am I supposed to do with that? Because <laughs> uh, I did when I opened this up um, to prepare today's sermon. Um, and I was talking to Luke after a uh, youth group on Friday night, and he said, how do you choose songs for that passage? Um, I think he did a good job. <laughs> um, it's a tough passage. It's, one, it's not one that you, you know, sometimes you open the Bible and you, you read a passage and you go, yeah, I get it. Um, that's something that God has shown me, and I can relate this to things that are happening in my own life, and I just understand. Um, but I, this one didn't click in that way for me when I first read it, and I had to do um, a fair bit of work. I had to sit with this passage for quite a long time um, before I kind of figured out exactly where we could go with this today. Um... So whenever I come across a difficult passage like this, um, there are three questions that I like to ask, and I'm telling you this because I think it might be helpful for you when you're reading at home and you come across a difficult passage. The three questions are, number one, is there any cultural context that it might be important for us to understand? Number two is, um, what would this have meant for the original audience? And then number three, What might it mean for me, for us, as 21st century Australian believers? Um, Now it's important that we ask those questions in order because just like everything else in the Bible, this passage was written in a specific time and place um, and it all happened within a specific culture that was not our culture. And so there's often references in there that people at the time would have gone, yep, I understand what that means, absolutely, that we don't get because we are not a product of that culture. Um, So we need to understand that first, and then we need to understand what it meant to the people who were actually there witnessing it, or in the case of um, some of the books of the Bible that are letters, um, for the original people who were reading it for the first time, the people to whom it was addressed. Um, And when we understand that, then we're better able to figure out what it might mean for us. But if we approach a passage like this and immediately ask the question, what might this mean for me, without understanding all those other things, we're in danger of of misinterpreting, of misunderstanding what what the message is. And I'm I'm sure some of you can think of times um, in history where misunderstanding the Bible has led to some rather problematic things, so we don't want to do that. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to ask these three questions and we're going to apply them to this text and we're going to see what we come up with. Uh, But first, because I think this is probably the most helpful thing, we're going to set the scene. We're going to look at what's just happened before this so that we have an understanding of how we got to this point. So if you look back over from the start of Mark chapter 3, you'll notice it's been a really busy time for Jesus. At the start of the chapter, he goes into the synagogue and heals a man who's got a shriveled hand. Sounds like it would be a really good thing, but he did it on the Sabbath and he's made a lot of people angry. After that, He's tried to go and get away with his disciples, but there was a big crowd following him, not surprising. He's been performing some pretty amazing miracles. But this crowd are following him, and they just will not leave him alone. And it gets to the point where he actually asks his disciples to organize a boat for him so that he can jump in and get away from these people who just will not give him any personal space, will not leave him alone. And once he gets away from the crowd, we see that he goes up to a mountainside, and he appoints 12 of his followers to be his disciples, his closest disciples. They're the ones who are going to go out and teach and drive out demons and do things in his name. And after that, that's when this story happens. So after all of these things, I think we can imagine that Jesus would have been exhausted. Um, some of you might know what it's like to be at a big event and be in a crowd. That's exhausting. That's exhausting. But to be the one who the crowd is crowding around, um, to have people constantly at you, constantly wanting something, not even giving you a minute alone, must be truly exhausting. And not just for Jesus, but for his followers as well. Him and his disciples. I mean, they've had this moment away on the mountain. We don't know whether the crowd followed them up there. Um, I like to think they didn't, but who knows. Um, So they go into a house Maybe it's the house they were staying in. Maybe someone's invited them in for a meal. We don't know. That bit isn't important. What's important is they clearly go into this house to have some food and just have a break. But what happens? The people follow him, even into a private home. Imagine inviting someone over for dinner and they bring a 1,000 people with them. Like, I would be locking the doors. Um... And and they're pressing in so closely, it says Jesus and his disciples can't even eat. How close do people have to be to you so that you can't eat? What a terrible situation. Um, I think Max will testify, do not get between me and my food. This sounds like the worst thing ever to me. Uh, So let's start with that first question. What's the cultural context here? What, What things might we be missing because we are not first century Jews? This question is actually often the easiest to answer um, because Google has many answers. um, And a lot has been written about first century Jewish culture that we can draw from. Um, So when I look at this passage, I think there's a few things that might cause us to ask some questions, maybe a few things that we don't even know that we need to ask about. Um, The first thing I see is this stuff about Jesus' family. What on earth would give them the idea that because Jesus is doing all this stuff, they need to go and take control of him. I don't think, I mean, maybe, maybe we see parents, if kids are acting out in public, parents might come and take their kids away, but for a grown adult, we don't see that in our culture. So what, what makes them think that that's an okay thing to do? So the first thing that we need to remember is that first century Israel was an honor and shame culture. There are still examples of honour and shame cultures today. A lot of Middle Eastern cultures um, function that way. What that means is their whole society runs on the concepts of honour and of shame. If you do good, you get honour. You do bad, you get shame. But the thing is, the shame is not just on you, it's on your whole family. And so if I do something bad, Max is shamed, my parents are shamed, my siblings are shamed, possibly even the in-laws of my siblings are shamed because there's a connection there Um, so we don't want to bring shame on our families we don't want to bring shame on the people who who know us so we try to do good but on the flip side of that if i do something good my whole family gets honor and you better believe if if a person was known for being a good person for being kind to the poor for just being a really upstanding citizen, their whole family would have been given honor and they would have come into the temple and people would have let them sit in the front row and it would have been really great. Um, and so Jesus' family, it says they went to get him, which means they weren't there, which means they haven't actually seen what Jesus is doing. So what's happened? They've heard some rumors. Obviously, this stuff that Jesus has been doing is worthy of gossip, right? Because when we see amazing things, we talk about them. You guys wouldn't believe what I saw yesterday. It was incredible. And the word has spread. Um, And, you know, gossip gets misconstrued and, and mixed up. And some people think it's a really good thing and some people think it's a really bad thing. So we don't know what Jesus' parents have heard or Jesus' family has heard, but it seems like maybe they haven't heard some great stuff. He has been acting out. He has been doing things that are going to bring shame on us. We need to get this situation under control. And so they set out to go and get him. But before they get there, something else happens. Um, And we'll get to that in a minute. But this this family dynamic of honor and shame and and supporting the family and looking out for the family, that's going to be really important because Jesus... Make some comments later in the passage about that. And so understanding how families worked back then is going to be really helpful to us when we get to that point. The second thing I see is the teachers of the law who have come down from Jerusalem. So whenever there's places, especially when there's journeys, it's really helpful to look up those places and to see where is this place? Where is place A? Where is place B? How far was it? What kind of a journey was it? Mark 3 doesn't tell us where this is all taking place, but Mark chapter 2 tells us that it's all happening in and around Capernaum. Um, And and historians believe that early in his ministry, Jesus kind of based himself in Capernaum, and so that's why we see a lot of stuff happening in Galilee and up on mountainsides and on the lake. It's all in and around Capernaum. Um, Now, I had a bit of a Google, and... Google tells me that Capernaum was about 137 kilometres from Jerusalem. So it would have taken these teachers of the law between four and six days to get there, depending on how fast they travelled. That tells us quite a lot, because it tells us that these guys didn't just hear that Jesus was in the neighbourhood and think they'd pop in and see what happened. That's the kind of journey that you need to plan for. You need to pack a bag, you might need someone to look after your house while you're gone. You need to tell people that you're going. It takes a while. So what we know is this was an intentional journey that they took. These people had a purpose in mind before they left home, and they set out on this journey to achieve that purpose. Again, it suggests that there's rumors about what Jesus has been doing, and those people that he made angry in the synagogue in, in Capernaum at the beginning of chapter 3 That word has gotten out even to the teachers of the law in the temple in Jerusalem. So word has traveled very far and very quickly about what Jesus has been doing. Um, The last thing that I think might need some explaining is um, the word Beelzebul. It's not really a word we use much. It's actually not even a word the New Testament uses a whole lot. Um, From context, you might have been able to guess Beelzebul um, was one of many names that our first century Jews gave to the devil. So when these guys are saying he's possessed by Beelzebul, what they're saying is Jesus is being possessed by Satan. Um, so I just wanted to flag that because sometimes those interpretations can be really helpful. So the second question that we need to ask ourselves is, what would this have meant to the original audience? Perhaps the first question of that is, who was the original audience? In this case, it's really easy. There's a crowd that have gathered in this house. So this crowd, these ordinary people who have heard that something amazing was going on and have have kind of followed Jesus, maybe they want to see Jesus do a miracle, maybe they want to ask Jesus for a miracle for themselves or for a loved one. These people were the original audience. They were just everyday people crowding around, pushing every personal boundary, trying to get close to Jesus. And then as we've said, while this is happening, his family are on their way um, to see what's going on. Um, And the second thing that happens is a little bit more sinister. These teachers of the law start spreading themselves through the crowd and start telling people that this guy, Jesus, is being possessed by the devil. He is not someone you guys should be following. He is the devil. Now this might seem like it's come from nowhere. And in fact, Jesus hasn't done anything yet, has he? He's come down from a mountain, he's gone into a house, and he's sat down to a meal. Nothing in that sequence of events is worthy of him being called the devil. But what we're seeing here is the first attempt by the religious leaders to discredit and to kill Jesus. Back at the beginning of chapter 3, in verse 6, when Jesus healed that guy with the, the shriveled hand and he did it on the Sabbath, it says that the Herodians and the Pharisees began plotting how to kill Jesus. So what we're seeing here is their first go. And you know, I have to say, it's actually a pretty solid plan. I mean, think about it from a first-century perspective. We know that first-century Jews, and even Jews today, very religious, very concerned with doing the right thing, very concerned with holiness and cleanliness. We know that they had cleansing rituals before they could come before God. Uh, They were very, very concerned with being right with God and and away from the things of the world. To a first-century Jew... To say something is Satan, to say something is the devil, is the absolute worst thing. And look at who was saying this. These guys are teachers of the law. Not just teachers from the law from the local synagogue. They're not just our local church pastor. They're the big guns. They've come from Jerusalem. They must know. These are people who speak with great spiritual authority. Great spiritual authority. And for them to be telling people... God says this, God wants you to do this, this is right, this is wrong, that held a lot of weight in these people's lives. They were very keen to listen to these teachers of the law. So when these guys are saying something or someone is connected to Satan, the expectation is that these average everyday people would immediately distance themselves from it. We do not want to be connected with the devil. We want to be seen as as holy before God Do we need to go and sacrifice an animal? Do we need to do a cleansing ritual? Get us away from that. And so from their perspective, this is a solid plan. Step one, convince people that this guy is the devil. Step two, no one is going to put up a fight when we kill him. That's Jesus taken care of. Our job is done. Unfortunately for them, they forgot one key problem. Problem for them, not a problem for us. Jesus is God. Jesus knew what they were trying to do and he was able to knock back all of their arguments and he was able to do it very graciously, I think, considering he could have chosen to act differently in all of his power. The way that he knocks back all of their arguments is by talking in parables. Now, this is something that we see a lot of um, and I know coming up in the next few chapters of Mark there's going to be some parables. Um, I think it's really interesting that he didn't answer directly, because he could have, couldn't he? I mean, he knew all the right answers. He knew all the good arguments. He could have stood up and said, well, let me tell you five ways in which you are wrong. In fact, let's not make it five, let's make it ten, because I've got all the answers, because I am God. But he didn't say that. Instead, he starts talking about divided houses and tying up a strong man and robbing his house. Uh, To us it might seem a little bit bizarre and very disconnected. Um, And I think maybe to some of the people watching it, some of that would have been confusing, but not all of it. What Jesus is basically saying is, if I'm Satan, then this is a battle between Satan and Satan. How can I fight against myself? How can I drive myself out? That's ridiculous. That's a solid argument. And then he goes on to talk about plundering a strong man's house, which again, sounds like an odd story, especially for Jesus to talk about plundering someone's house. It's not, it's not something that we associate with Jesus, um, but it's a really powerful image because what he's doing here is he is laying out exactly what his job is here on earth. The strong man... Is Satan. And Jesus has come to tie up Satan and plunder his household, his domain, his realm, and take the plunder, that's us, back into the kingdom of God. And by doing that, he is finishing off Satan, he is ending his power. That's a really powerful metaphor. And it's actually one we see a few times in scripture. There's a few times where um, we're told that the kingdom of God will come like a thief in the night, and if the owner of the house knew when the thief was coming, he would have been up and ready, Um, but we don't know, because it's coming like a thief in the night. Um, It seems like an odd metaphor, but it's a really powerful one. And when we see this, it's very clear that Jesus is not trying to um, disable Satan's household if you like from within he's not going i'll disguise myself as a demon and i'll do all these things that's not what he's doing he's attacking head on every demon driven out every person healed every sin forgiven is an attack is him binding satan and plundering his household jesus then points out that the only unforgivable sin is undermining and misnaming god's work in other words. If you look at God's work and call it satanic, like these teachers of the law have just done, or to look at Satan's work and call it godly, that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And he says all other sins will be forgiven. Now to us we go, yeah, great, all my sins will be forgiven. But to a person at that time, that would have been quite confrontational. Um, if you look at the work of the temple in the first century, a significant portion of their work was essentially forgiveness of sins. If you look at the law in the Old Testament, if you had a, a defiling skin, condi- skin condition, what did you have to do? Isolate until it was better. When it was better, go and show yourself to a priest who would pronounce you clean. Clean equals able to, be c- able to come before God, Right? If there was mold in your house, who came to decide if, if that was okay and you, your, you were clean before God? If you were sick, once you were better, you show yourself to a priest. The priests offered sacrifice on the people's behalf. That is all forgiveness of sin. Um, now, if we wanted to get theological and technical, we would know that God forgives the sin and the priest was the conduit. But the priests, the temple, was exercising that power. And so, for these people to hear, all your sins are going to be forgiven, would have been quite confusing, I think, uh, and a little bit confrontational. And he's also saying that if you refuse to acknowledge the Holy Spirit, that sin will not be forgiven. And so, that's a little bit of an attack, isn't it, on those religious leaders who are going, that's not God, that's the devil. He's saying, "Well, oh, that sin's not going to be forgiven. If you continue to reject the Holy Spirit, that sin cannot be forgiven. And then the last thing I think was probably the most shocking thing for these people to hear. Some people come in and they say, hey, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, Who? Now, we just talked about how family was so important in those days. Can you imagine, like, one of the most shameful things to be like, who's my mother? Who's my brothers? I don't know them. Horrific. These people would have been shocked. And then he tells the crowd that his real family are the people who are seated around the table with him. Those people who have given up everything and chosen to follow him at all costs. So I think that statement in particular would have been like a slap in the face to some people to hear Jesus speak about family like that that's one of those moments where you go home and you go what what did he mean and and probably processing that for weeks and I think while Jesus did often speak in parables and and you know we know that sometimes Um, people didn't understand what he was saying and we know that sometimes the disciples went to Jesus afterwards and went, hey Jesus, what did that mean? Maybe the people who were there in the crowd didn't understand every single word that Jesus was saying, but they would have understood enough to know that he was challenging the religious authorities and letting them know that their power isn't what they think it is. That his power is higher, that he answers to a higher authority, that he is a part of a higher authority than they are. And so even if they wouldn't have understood every word, they would have understood that. Uh, Those comments on the family and the attack on the temple and the religious leaders would have been very clear to most of the people there. And while some might have been shocked, maybe even angry at those statements, I think for some there would have been a sense of relief or hope. Maybe this guy is the person that God has promised who's going to come and bring salvation to the Jews because that's what they're all waiting for, isn't it? Um, And and I think this would have stirred something in some of the people in the crowd uh, to let them know that, hey, maybe there's something in this. So with that, we come to the final question. What does this mean for you and I in a vastly different time, in a vastly different culture, to when this took place? What meaning can we take out of this and apply to our own lives that's in line with its original intent? There's a lot, and maybe as we were talking, you kind of went, oh, that could apply to me, and oh, that's interesting. Um, For me, I've got three things that I think are key. That's not to say they're the only three things. If you've got something else, if God is speaking to you in another way, that's great. Um, But for me, these are kind of the three big pieces that I feel like we can take away. I think the first thing is this this strong man parable. There's something in that um, that can be really helpful to us. You know, there's a few passages in the Gospels where Jesus tells us really clearly exactly why he is here on earth. I think of... um, Luke 19, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Uh, Matthew 5, I have not come to abolish the laws, but to fulfill them. And John 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is another one of those passages, but he doesn't say it quite so directly. Instead, he uses this really beautiful parable of of tying up this man and, and, and robbing his house, um, and I think this passage can offer certainty in times of doubt. For us to look at that and go, yeah, Jesus is the one who can tie up the strong man. I don't have to do that. I am the, the plunder sitting in the house waiting to be taken back by Jesus. Jesus is the one. And I have been. If, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been taken out of that and brought into the kingdom of God. Um, but I'm not the one who has to tie up the strong man. There's a a bit of relief in that, but also I think there's something in this whole statement of Jesus that tells us how should I act when someone starts claiming that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be? When someone starts saying Jesus was crazy, or he was possessed, or he just, he was a great guy, really, but he definitely wasn't God, how do I respond to those statements? And I think there's something in Jesus' response here. He didn't start a debate or a fight. He didn't give a TED Talk about five reasons why these these people are wrong. He told some stories that allowed people to think about the answer for themselves. And I think there's some wisdom in that. Now, that's not the only way that Jesus deals with these situations. We see other parts of the Gospels where he does Uh, confront those statements head on and say, actually, no, you're wrong. But I think the more variety we see in Jesus' responses to that, the more we learn about our own responses to those questions. And when a friend or a neighbor or a colleague says, oh, I don't believe Jesus was God, we don't have to give a big argument. We don't have to defeat them with our logic or our theological knowledge. Sometimes it's better to just give a simple answer, tell a little story, and allow them to think for themselves. Because it's not me who's going to convince them. It's not you who's going to convince them. It's the Holy Spirit working in them. And so what does it look like for us to step back and allow the Holy Spirit to step in and to do that work that isn't our work? The second thing I think... Uh, leading in from that, is how are we acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit? I think it's important to address that unforgivable sin thing, because when we see a phrase like unforgivable sin, we instantly start going, oh my goodness, have I done that? Have I ac- Did I misphrase? Did I misspeak? Have I, am I never going to be forgiven? Um, and I want to reassure you, it's okay. Um, because this is not about an accident... Uh, i should have I should have phrased that better that 's not what this is uh, you don 't accidentally blaspheme against the holy Spirit here 's why when we hone in on that little you will not be forgiven if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. we miss the context. Jesus is speaking to people who have publicly announced that his work is the devil 's work that is is what he is arguing against here and so To say um, that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is unforgivable, what he's saying is if you consistently reject the Holy Spirit, if you refuse to acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit, that is the unforgivable sin. And if you're here and you're praying and you are you have become a follower of Jesus, or maybe you haven't, but you're thinking about that, you're already acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit. By accepting Jesus into your life, you acknowledge the work of the Holy Spirit. Every time someone says to you, how was your week? And you say, oh yeah, it was pretty good. God's been really good to me this week. You're acknowledging the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, I don't see any of you accidentally rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't happen. Uh, and so I think there's some great reassurance in this passage for, for those of us who maybe have anxious minds and, and tend to focus in on those big scary sentences like unforgivable sin. Uh, and finally, I think that Jesus has something to say here about family and what a family is and who a family is. As we said, in in first century Israel, the family unit was incredibly important and incredibly tight-knit. Some would even have said it was as important as the temple worship practices at the time. That's putting it on a pretty high level. And so the first thing Jesus says is not that it's unimportant. He doesn't degrade it or undermine the importance of the family, but he just wants to make clear the order. He says our loyalty is first to God and secondly to our families. And ideally, there'd be no conflict in that. Because if I'm following God and my family are following God, then we're all on the same path and everything is harmonious and good. But should a conflict arise, the loyalty is to God first. The second thing, though, that Jesus does here is that he radically expands the definition of family for all people, for all believers. Um, back in those days, as we do today, uh, they would have thought of their family as probably the people they lived with. Mom, dad, siblings. Now, they had big households in those days, so maybe grandparents and aunts and uncles as well. Um, but if I asked you, who's your family? you probably immediately go, well, I've got parents and kids and siblings and... Those are my family. You might even talk a bit about your extended family, but in terms of your family unit, it's kind of a narrow definition. But as believers, Jesus has just pulled that apart and expanded it. We had a baptism last week, and when we talk about baptism, we often talk about being reborn. Um, And when we're reborn, we're not just reborn into our old lives. We're reborn into a new life, into a new family, the family of God. Um, One preacher put it like this. He said, When someone steps up and answers Jesus' call to follow him, the church washes that person in water, that's baptism, which says, among other things, that the person has been reborn, has started over, and has been adopted into a new God-formed family. It is as if the person gets a new name, Christian, that takes precedence over that person's family name. I really love that idea. And I think it's something that we can relate to. Um, When we got married, I chose to change my name and take on Max's surname. Um, I didn't have to do that. No one forced me to. Max would still love me if I didn't. Um, But we wanted to have the same name. I'm seeing some looks over there. We're going to talk about this later. (laughs) We wanted to have the same name. Uh, because that name is a sign to everyone who sees it that we belong together, that we're a family together. And my previous name, um, my family name before I changed my name, that's still important, uh, and actually last week I was at um, a meeting and someone said, oh, Rachel White, and I went, yep, that's me, instantly. Not a question. Hasn't been my name for five and a half years. But I still answered instantly. Because that name is still important and that family is still important. But that name is a signifier that I belong to something new now. And so when we think about if, if you've been baptised, if you've um, become a follower of Jesus, take away whatever your surname is and insert Christian instead and look around at all the people in your new family. And that would have been radical for those people and I think it's radical for us as well. To choose to have that level of family loyalty to these people here in this room, some of whom we might know really well and some of whom we might not even know their names. Um, That's phenomenal. You don't see that anywhere else in the world. But when you become a follower of Jesus, you become a member of the biggest family on earth and that is such a privilege. And so those are the three things that I think apply from this passage to our own lives today um, but I just want to finish with with this the book of Mark consistently all throughout the book every chapter it puts two questions before the reader the first question is who is Jesus everything Mark has written is designed to show us who is Jesus and the second question is who does Jesus say you are Right, And we see this over and over again. We see Jesus making comments that that show who we are when we choose to follow him, how he values us, how he loves us. And this passage provides us with answers for both of those questions. Jesus is the one sent by God to tie up Satan and to plunder his house, to bring all of us into the kingdom of God. And number two, Jesus says that we are his family. He says we are his mother and his brothers and his sisters. We have a place with him, and he cares deeply for us. And if you can't remember anything else I've said today, just remember that, um, because I think that is the message of encouragement that many of us need. Um, So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you provide us um, with your word and with all of these many examples of what it means to follow you and what it means to be loved by you. Thank you that um, you show us time and time again your power and your authority through scripture. Um, And thank you that you have chosen to use that power and authority to rescue us, to bring us into your kingdom, into your family. Lord, for those in our family who are not with us today, I just pray that they would know your presence with them, that they would know your life-changing love with them today. Uh, And for each of us as we go out uh, from this place into our weeks, I just pray that um, you would help us and equip us uh, to be a good family to each other um, and, and to be prepared to speak your word to those who we come across. I pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone.